What's up, my friends? My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. If you'd like to learn more about the work that I do, head over to my website, kyle.surf, where you can see any of the short documentaries that I've made on subjects ranging from the Indonesia trash epidemic to the impact wild pig are having on coral reefs in Hawaii to the importance of open watersheds in Baja. Head over to my website, kyle.surf to check them out. Now, ever since I was about 10 years old, one of the most consistent rituals in my life has been to wax up my surfboard, ride my bicycle about 10 blocks down to one of my favorite surf spots, and go surfing. I have done this exact route hundreds of times. And never in all of these years did it occur to me that I might be biking by the home of one of the leading researchers on psychedelic substances. Someone whose voice I have heard on the Tim Ferriss show. Someone whose face I have seen in the National Geographic documentary Inside LSD. And someone whose book I have greatly enjoyed. It never occurred to me that I might be biking by Dr. Jim Fadiman's house. Now, now, right now, psilocybin mushrooms are categorized as a Schedule One drug under the C Controlled Substances Act. Schedule One drugs, by definition, serve no legitimate medical purpose in the United States. One result of psychedelics being illegal is that we don't have good information about them. Most of us learned about psychedelics from the police officer who went to our sixth grade dare class and scared the shit out of us, or from our big brother, or from Steve, who we went to high school with, who now lives in a loft in Santa Monica and claims to be a shaman. Now, all of these sources aren't necessarily the best. And... I advocate for safety, whether you are learning about surfing or sex or psychedelics. I believe that the more information you have about ways that you can avoid getting into a bad situation, the better off you will be. Which is why I'm so excited to have a conversation about psychedelics with someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Dr. Jim Fadiman is most famous for his research conducted on therapeutic and spiritual aspects of psychedelic substances. In 1974, he co-founded the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology and has since continued to explore potential medical and creative uses of psychedelic substances. In his most recent book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys, he provides insight into safe and correct uses of psychedelic substances. The book was inspired by his unique knowledge of psychedelic experiences and his desire to explain beneficial use uses of those substances. He received his bachelor's from Harvard University in social relations and his master's and PhD from Stanford University in psychology. Ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts. And please welcome Dr. Jim Fadiman. 
Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. What have you done uh, in your life to to be more effective with the work that you do and not be crazy busy? I'm not doing a very good job yet because um, once I started this last round of my life, it's one of many careers, um, I'm answering people who are in trouble and who want help really from all over the world. And you can't just send them a, a note that says, thanks for your email, hope you get better because they're asking for information that I can provide them. Yeah. Do you feel like you sometimes take on any of their trauma? Because you're having people reach out to you who are in sometimes dire straits. Oh, it's awful. I take on the worst of them because the ones that are easy, I really know how to answer, and I have a fantastic uh, co-researcher. Um, and we're streamlining it. We're getting it so that we can handle most of the requests pretty easily. And people are saying... Can you help me? I've tried the following 14 things that haven't worked. And if the answer is yes, you can't not answer. What's an example of that? Well, people who have been depressed and anxious, maybe traumatized, um, maybe have learning difficulties, and they list you know, uh, two or three lines of medications and therapies. And we write them and say, um, if you try microdosing, people like you have done quite well. And then we get um, feedback and they say, you're right, I'm feeling a lot more like myself than I have in the past five, 10, 15 years. Will they typically travel here for microdosing sessions? Yeah, microdoses are psychedelics. They are illegal in most countries. <laughs> and people basically have to supply their own and I'm amazed how many people all over the world seem to find that not so difficult. And, of course, one of the ways is to grow your own mushrooms because um, plants have this very funny side light, which is they don't know they're illegal. I'm, I can't believe they, did, they didn't. <laughs> the DEA didn't tell them. Well, there are these little notices you'll find at the foot of mushrooms, but they can't read. Oh, damn it. Right. Little mushroom spore growing up or mushroom fruit growing up from <laughs> cow poop DEA agent. Tackles it. You're under arrest. You've got it. You could do a great SNL skit about that one. Well, um, I'm hoping SNL does it. Right. Describe to me a world um, that you want to live in, in regards to the state and the tone of psychedelics in society. Because you've been in this world for so long. You've seen so many iterations of it. And I think that now it's it's such an exciting time because it is opening up more and more. But I'll, can you paint that picture for me? Well, one way is to look at what are conventional, universally agreed upon freedoms. And then the question is, how much of those do we have? And one freedom, I think, is you should be able to get as close to divinity, however you understand that, as you wish. I don't think there should be any restriction on that. 
So that's a world I'd like to live in where people are allowed to be uh, as attuned or aligned or part of the divine as they choose. So that's that's one. What's another? Another is I think people should be allowed to find out as much about the external world as they can. Now, that can be called science and can be called observation. It can be called all kinds of things, but it's basically the freedom to discover. And there are some religious traditions which say, boy, God made everything. Let's see how much of it we can discover and understand because that's cool. And you have other religions that say, well, science may not be the best way because it might get in the way of some beliefs that we've had for a long time. So I think people should be allowed to discover as much as possible. And the other freedom is really to explore yourself if you're not harming anybody else. Um, it's kind of like the idea that you should not have access to your own consciousness um, just seems to me bizarre. And um, I, when I take that position, you see, that allows me to do things like be on right-wing Christian radio, which is somewhat different from this program. <laughs> but... Nobody is going you, to... You don't know this. <laughs> but nobody's going to fight me right. on, can you be, you know, is it a bad idea to get closer to God? It's really hard to take the position, uh, no, no, you shouldn't be allowed to do that, and so forth. So that's the kind of world I'd like to live in, and it's not very far away. It's, you know, it's, it's, it is next door, so to speak, and it is close, and um, I hope that it moves in more and more in that direction. Take me back to the early 1960s before psychedelics were classified as a Schedule One drug. Right. You were working in Menlo Park. Yep. On your research. Um, you were working with veterans. I was working at the International Foundation for Advanced Study, which was actually a, a suite of offices um, on the second floor of a, in, in Menlo Park in a, little, in a commercial zone. Our view was of a beautiful tree, except if you looked at the roots of the tree, it was in a parking lot. And we were exploring how to best help people have a major psychedelic experience, have a transcendental experience, have a reconnecting, in a sense, fully with the spiritual side of, of their nature. Um, and we had just a wide range of people. It was kind of people you would might meet in an out clinic except that we also had a bunch of just curious, creative, um, powerful intellectuals and so forth who came through. That was our basic work. And who were you working with back then? Um, there was a man named Myron Stolaroff who was one of the founders, one of the early employees of Ampex, which invented the wire tape recorder. Uh, there was Willis Harmon, who was full professor of electrical engineering at Stanford. Uh, there were physicians... And there were people who were very skilled at guiding people to have this, this particular experience. And the way that clinic worked is people had some hours of preparation, and then they had one single large-dose experience, and then they had a number of integration sessions where they talked about it. And that's what we were doing, mostly. The integration part of psychedelics is what has been really fascinating to me. And since I've read your book, you talk about it as a three-day voyage. And I think that from my experience, that's a big, the big mistake that a lot of people make is that they'll want to have some crazy experience. They'll use psychedelics 
and then the next day they'll head back straight into their life and a lot of the lessons that they could integrate don't get fully integrated can you talk about that day after specifically and what questions um you would ask people what questions your your colleagues would ask people so that they could integrate those lessons um, most gracefully? Well, when we say a three-day experience, that's like the absolute dead minimum. What we're saying is, for most people, when you have a major psychedelic experience, it blows apart a lot of your belief systems. It blows apart the way you look at other people, the way you look at yourself, the way you look at the, the plant life, the way you look at education. And the idea that you can then stuff that all back in the box um, just doesn't work. So what we say at an absolute minimum is the day after your psychedelic experience, um, spend it quietly, spend it hopefully alone and in nature. Um, there's a, a comment by Albert Hoffman about his first experience, which was a kind of um, puzzling mistake perhaps, and he says that when he went out into his garden the next day, it was like the first day of creation, which is everything was special. And so what we're saying to people, if, if as people later would report, that this is probably one of the most important experiences of your life, and that's true in study after study, wouldn't it be sensible to take a little time to digest it? Yeah. And what we actually found in terms of the shifting, the literally internal shifting of, of factors of personality that uh, when we were measuring, it was about a year before a person fully integrated a single psychedelic experience. So nowadays when people say, you know, I'm gonna drop acid this weekend, but I have a, um, a chemistry test the next day, so I've gotta study all night. That's like missing the point, it's like saying, um, let's go away to a desert island. You're my favorite woman in the world, and you're the first person I've ever made love with, but I've only got 25 minutes. <laughs> right, right. What are some of those questions that um, you think are most important for people to ask themselves? Well, what... Because what they're very paradigm-shifting. There are these questions that most people... That, they're so big, it sometimes might be hard for people to put those questions into words. Where would you recommend people start? Well, you know, I'm, I'm aware when you're asking kind of what would I and what would I, I'm aware that I answer it as in, in very shady, indirect ways, yeah. which is what we said to people was, you can ask any question you want in the world from why do I get toenail fungus to what's the nature of God? And during this day that you're going to have this one large experience, you will probably get some information about any of that. And we would say, write those questions down. You know, why did my stepfather leave me when I was eight? Um, how come I flunked out of college? How come my relationships aren't working? Why don't I get a raise at work? Everything from trivial to not trivial at all. And then near the end of the day, we would hand people their list. And almost always, they would go down and go, hmm, 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 oh yeah, click, click, kind of check it off. And they would indicate when we talked to them later that they hadn't covered any of those questions directly, but somehow they all felt answered. So the answer is you ask the best questions you can, and that is preparation. It's, I mean, when we talk about an athletic event, what you do is you psych yourself up. Now, what the hell does that mean? 
Um, it can mean, you know, and people, if you say, well, how do you do it? And the answer is all over the map. But everybody knows what you're talking about, which is you're, you're taking that experience that's coming up seriously. And you take yourself seriously. It's not um, amusing. It may be incredibly funny. People will often end up laughing hysterically, but usually they're laughing at their own neuroses because they say, how could I ever have seen the world in such a um, negative, in, inappropriate, incorrect way? How could I have forgotten who I really was? Yeah, exactly. It's a great question. And the answer is the system's pretty well set up, so we all forget who we are, and isn't it nice that there are these little ways in which we remember? You live such a perfect, uh, purpose-driven life. How would you describe your purpose? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I don't think I've had a purpose-driven life. I think I've been driven places. Um, but I do know enough to stand on the corner with my thumb out uh, and wait for something to happen. I literally will, will stop some kind of, of work or career or... Um, living situation or teaching situation, and I will create what I call a vacuum. And I, what I've said is the universe doesn't like vacuums. So the universe says, oh, hey, Fadiman's not doing anything. Let's give him something. So, for instance, I ended up teaching in the Department of Design Engineering in Mechanical Engineering at Stanford at the graduate level. Now, that sounds like well, people do that, but most people who do that have had at least one course in engineering, and I hadn't. And I looked at that, and I thought, okay, universe, <laughs> that's what you have in mind. That's what the opportunity is. The people there know that you don't know anything about engineering, and they're hiring you. Let's see what happens. And so my career has been more or less... Um, I think it's the way a billiard ball talks about its career, is I'm knocked here, I'm knocked there. Sometimes I go into a pocket and it's really nice. Sometimes I just wander around the board for a while and get kicked between the, the bumpers. And it all seems to be working out pretty well. Yeah. I like it. Um, what do you think are some things that you would have done differently early on when and navigating your career into ending up now or is it I, I'm just I, I have a ton of respect for you I think that you've done <laughs> amazing work and I love asking about mistakes of people like yourself well see when you if you end up feeling pretty good about yourself you realize that they weren't mistakes they were just things that you didn't understand the implications of so for example uh, I went to graduate school I have a PhD in psychology from a, a class A institution uh, and I did a dissertation on, on about the effects of psychedelics, which was very, very rare to do. My institution never allowed it again. <laughs> and you say, oh, well, academic career, he's this kind of wordy guy, it makes sense. Well, why did I go to graduate school? Well, I was actually living in Paris on as little as one could possibly live on per day, which included a lot of mooching from friends. I, was, I had written a novel, not very good, but uh, it gave me, I liked that. I'd traveled. I was very content. And my, this is now the 60s, and this is the Vietnam War. And my draft board wrote me a note. And they said, hi, Jim. <laughs> um, if you're not doing anything else, would you show up at your draft board at such and such? And I thought, 
what are my other choices? And one of them, it turned out, is if you were going to graduate school, you would not be drafted. So I looked at the possibility, and now I'd had some psychedelic experience, and I, I found that the chances of my being willing to kill people, especially ones I didn't know, were very poor, and that I would have been a terrible soldier and probably ended up in the VA as a patient. I did end up helping in the VA the other way around. So I applied to graduate school. And my being in graduate school was entirely um, either um, profoundly wise of me, um, simply cowardly, um, or I didn't really think it through. And um, w what year was that? This was, I went to graduate school in 1961. And when did the Vietnam War get underway with when it was just oh, it was, get, it, it, was, was it was busy it was then. busy by then yeah and then as they changed the rules and I kept going through graduate school I then got married which I'm pretty sure also got you out of the draft um, so at some level um, my career is based on being a draft dodger another way of saying it my career is based on that I would would have been a conscientious objector if I'd have understood the situation better and then I would have lived in Canada or something um, or been a you know a medic in you know in downtown Minneapolis. My mom talks about um, sitting around the TV during those days, and they would do the birthday uh, wheel. You yeah. could probably explain this. Oh long yeah, no, there was there was basically a lottery. It was a lottery, and you'd be sitting around the TV with your friends, and they would you would find out what your number would be, and if it was a high number, you were likely to go to Vietnam, and if it was a low number, you would continue with your life. So it was a, it was probably the most exciting lottery you would ever participate in. Now I get bummed out if I don't have enough Instagram <laughs> likes. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> what's gonna happen? <laughs> Wow, what what an intense time. So it was a very intense time and but I was really being in this graduate school. Now now you understand I was in a psychology department that hadn't the faintest idea about anything that I was interested in. And I understood that if I was thrown out of that department for not being the right kind of person, then I would my draft board would say, well, we're, we offer you a great backup career. So I literally um, thought about it, and I thought, well, what's the best way to go through graduate school if you're really a psychedelic hippie freak? So I wore a sports jacket and a tie and the slacks, and I made sure I showed up every day uh, and befriended the secretaries who really run academic departments. And... I was about as straight as one could possibly look like, and I thought, they'll be fooled. And the sad thing is, they were. <laughs> now, at night, I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, the Popo Vol, which is the, the, the Aztec and the Mayan um, mythology. I was reading Jung. I was reading all kinds of things to figure out what the psychedelic world was about. And I was reading St. John of the Cross and Mystics. But in the daytime, I was, I was Joe Psychologist um, with his little tie and, and suit and, and boring exterior. When you were a child, did you have ex any experiences that um, drew you to understanding expanded realms of consciousness? Is there some way I can avoid saying no? <laughs> no, I was 
brought up in Southern California, and I went to the beach a lot, and I'd say as close as I came to mystical experience was body surfing, um, which can get you pretty close, particularly when you miss the wave and you are rolling along underwater with the sand scraping at your chest. Um, you do have a feeling of being mortal and being part of something huge and wonderful. Um, but I can't say that that transformed my attitude and I was this closet mystic waiting for psychedelics. No, I was, um, it was said of me in college, um, does he ever have a serious thought? Um, that was not a compliment. Uh, but I was involved in theater. I was involved in musicals. Um, I was enjoying college. I had no um, aspirations of any particular career. Um, you know, as a child, I'd wanted to be a comedy writer. Um, that's when I learned that comedians on the radio had writers. But I also wanted to be a fireman. Who were some of your favorite comedians? Well, it was, it was I think, Bob Hope. Bob Hope. Who is why I learned that he had a stable of writers. And, <laughs> and since I grew up at the, in the literary side of Hollywood, my father was a story editor uh, for a couple of major studios. And a story editor in those days told the studio what properties, what books, what scripts would be a good idea to make into movies. That was the, that was the department that, that helped the studio decide what to make. So I grew up surrounded by words and literature and writers. And when I was finishing college, I didn't have, still had no idea what to do, but I went and lived in Europe on all the money I'd accumulated and all that I could beg from relatives. And while in Europe, I, had a, uh, I was met by my, my favorite professor, whose name was Richard Alpert, who became Ramdas, and he said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me, and I want to share it with you. And I thought, okay, that's cool. And I was going to go body surfing. Or what? I, I, I don't know. I thought we we're going to a story or something. But we're in we're in Paris as we're saying this, where I've been living. And then he takes from his breast pocket of his sport coat <laughs> this little vial of pills, and I think words we don't say on the air, but what the is the first two words of it. And it was, again, total surprise. Um, I mean, I didn't drink coffee, let alone take any psychedelics, let alone did anyone know what the word even was. Uh, but by the end of that evening, my opinion of a lot of things had changed. Then at one point, we're sitting on in this little cafe, and the colors are brightening, and everything is looking pretty exciting. And behind me, I'm hearing all the conversations as people walk by. And then I thought, my French isn't that good. I never hear all the conversations that go by. It's, it's wonderful to not know a language because you're then kind of in a little private space. And then suddenly I was hearing everybody. And I said to, to Dick Alpert, this is just too much for me. And he said, it's too much for me too. And I said, but you're not taking any of these pills. He said, no, but it's my first time in Paris. <laughs> so we retreated to my fifth floor walk-up uh, little hotel room, and that's how I spent the, uh, my first psychedelic experience, kind of trying to make some sense out of a, what I would now call a kind of medium-dose psilocybin experience, which was definitely not at the mystical level, but very much at the at an I-thou level, where there was a feeling of closeness and trust um, and warmth, um, 
and and kind of integrity between us that was quite remarkable because I was had been his undergraduate one of his undergraduate students. Go 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 a little bit deeper into that of making sense of that experience. How just go a little bit more. Well, I think it was a little hard for me to make sense of it. What it was is that what I saw is that the world that I had lived in up until that evening was smaller than the world that I was now in. Now, that occurred a few more times as the world got larger and larger, but at that point, one of the things I noted was that I was actually capable of being a perfectly together person in the world without having a large library. Now, that may sound silly, but again, I came out of this word world, and um, kind of being able to touch a lot of books gave me identity. And particularly, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, and that was absolutely supported. So to realize that somehow I was okay was a fairly revelatory event. And yeah. as it turned out, a week later, I had followed uh, Dick Alpert to Copenhagen, where he was meeting with Tim Leary and Aldous Huxley. And the three of these people were giving their first presentation about psychedelics to an international psychological group. So it, this, it's hard to imagine now a world in which no one knew about anything about psychedelics, except a few esoteric scholars, and they knew about it from you know, previous civilizations. So what I began to discover is that there were different ways of looking at the world that had never occurred to me. And I remember being in a museum looking at Impressionist paintings. And in my incredibly naive ignorance and, and arrogance, I was looking at them and saying, he got it, he knew. No, he didn't know, he just was copying. Oh no, he really got it. I have the faintest idea if any of that was true. Um, but I was now, had this tool to evaluate people and situations which I'd never had before, which was, were they aware of more than, um, than their body outline? Did they realize that their consciousness was larger than themselves? Yeah. And, and the answer, if one looks at, say, artists, is a lot of them, yes. Yeah. And um, let's move forward now to when you were working with veterans. That sense of okayness with yourself, that sense of being part of a larger system, how is that applied to someone like a veteran who has had trauma in their life? Well, I was... Um, I was not being trained as a clinical psychologist. However, I had an opportunity to do some work at the Palo Alto Veterans Administration, um, and there was a there was a award which was filled with Stanford students, um, all of whom were getting supervision. And then there was the award that I was on, which I had no students but me. And they said, "Here's a bunch of vets, <laughs> do therapy," and I think. Let's see, I'm younger than any of these people. I'm a wimp. These are all people who have been injured in some way in real combat, and they're nuts, and I'm supposed to help them. It was an exciting group, and because I didn't know any of the rules, I could break them. And I, I'm remembering now, I had a wonderful man who acknowledged that really what why he was still in the VA is because he didn't want to have an indoor job. 
And so we talked about outdoor possibilities, and he eventually left and got a job in the Postal Service where he had a big rural route. And he was outdoors all day, and he sent me this card, and he said, I am so happy. I don't talk to anyone. I have no social life, and I live outdoors, and you know, I like that much better than being trapped at the VA. And, and another wonderful guy who I think was a West Point graduate as well, and he, I would say he escaped because he developed a whole rationale for the authorities that he was going to college, and we talked about that he would get a dog, and I said, why do you want a dog? He said, oh, so girls will come up to me and say, oh, what a nice dog you have. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and so he left, and then I got a postcard from him a few years, a few weeks later. He said, I'm in a little shack in the back of my grandmother's farm. In essence, what he says, I'm just as crazy as I ever was, but I've escaped the VA. And I, I just thought, what a, what a lovely guy this was, that he understood the problem. And I remember another one saying, okay, so you make me sane. So what do I do? I go get a job, and they say, well, what, what's your background? He said, well, I'm an ex-fighter pilot, and I've been in the veterans' hospital as a mental patient. He said, you know what kind of jobs you get offered? Hotel clerk on the night shift. He said, I think I'll stay here. So I learned a great deal from the vets. I can't say that they learned a lot from me. Um, but it was a chance for me to get a level of education that I certainly wasn't getting at Stanford. I bet. I bet. That's a master's class in human <laughs> psychology in Whoa. the real world. Um, going back to that okayness feeling mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. struck a chord with me <laughs> because man i've been making these mini documentaries for the past eight or nine years now and i always had this feeling that if i just made the next one more just a little better but it got a certain amount of views right then i'd be okay well i have a friend um beautiful young woman who said to me the other day she said you know about a month ago i got on instagram and I have 11,000 followers. And I thought, whoa, that's cool. <laughs> and then she said, but I realized that what I was getting into was wanting more followers. And what I understood was I would not ever stop wanting more followers if I kept going this way. So I'm, I'm pulling back from my Instagram addiction because it's clear that more won't be better. And, and, and it's a major form of neuroses <laughs> that I see now around me. And that, partly from my own experimenting with psychedelics, has really helped me be easier on myself. And just that sense of, oh, if I just get a little bit more, then I'll be there. Oh, if I just like right. get this, get that, then I'll be there. And, and I realized <sighs> that it's like putting your it's like being in a car going as fast as you can pedal the metal and you're just waiting for the road to run out at some point because at some point it's going to run out <laughs> i heard that somewhere i forget where yeah. and i'm not i'm not I'd, uh, I'd, one of those i had a friend in college an undergraduate friend yeah. who had a motorcycle yeah and at one point he said i have to sell the cycle i said why he said i'm just going faster and faster and she he said the other day i was going around a traffic circle and on a motorcycle, you can go around a traffic circle on the inside edge, you know, the raised concrete. And he said, and I did that, and I thought, if I just went a few miles faster, I would kill myself. He said, I think I'd better stop. 
Yeah. And so at some point we get these little hints. My friend with the Instagram, this guy with the motorcycle. And what you get is if you're doing something like films, you can always make them better. And that's a wonderful thing to do because you are, um, it's kind of like serious runners are only running against themselves. They're not running against anyone. They're just looking at their own time. And they also know that it's a three-minute mile is unlikely. Yeah, but it is dangerous in the, se- in the way that now we have access to everyone else's lives at all times. <laughs> and we're constantly, look, damn, Jim, Jim went to the beach today. I need to go to the beach today. Damn, like Jim went body surfing. Oh, I'm stuck here inside. And we're constantly comparing ourselves in a way that's, that's really dangerous. And I, I know multiple people in the past year who are my age mm. who have had mental breakdowns because of this intense neuroses that we're surrounded by and it really worries me and that's the reason that i'm willing to talk openly about psychedelics because i i really believe that they're an effective tool to break that cycle and i understand that they are not you know a magic pill there is nothing there's work that needs to go along with it but it's I just think that it's time that we start talking honestly about how we can live lives with dignity and grace. Well, it, it is that question of what's the correct work. And um, most of the spiritual traditions talk about that if you work a really, 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 really long time, you'll you'll get a glimpse of the wonderfulness of who you are and that you're really God and so forth. And psychedelics say, well, how about I do that in eight hours? And all the people who are working hard say, it won't work that way. And the image I have is if your goal is to get that fantastic view from the top of the mountain, and it is fantastic, and suddenly it's a 360-degree view and so forth. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't mind flying up to the top of the mountain and being told you can't stay very long. And then when I go back down, I know that it's worth doing a lot of the work. Yeah. You know it's there. Because I know it's there. It isn't a belief. It's what is called knowledge. And when you, when you realize that here's the way people who have a serious psychedelic experience talk in, amongst themselves, when you know that you weren't born and you don't die and that you go on forever and that this is just this life, it kind of changes how important things are. And there's a, there's a, a wonderful uh, story. It's a, um, there's a Hindu god called Krishna, and Krishna at some point reincarnates into human form because he wants to just just dig on it. He wants to go body surf. And he wants not only to go body surf, but he makes himself at one point into 5,000 human beings, each one with a wife. I mean, he really does it up. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a god. And at one point, he's about to annihilate an evil king. And the evil king says to his wazir, this is really unfair. And the wazir says, what's your problem? And he says, he's he's a god and he's going to annihilate me and I've been the best evil king I could be. And the wazir says, don't be such a baby. And the king says, what do you mean? And the wazir says, it's just one life. (laughs) That's deep. That's very deep. So what I see in 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 really my my more psychedelic-oriented friends is Many of them are very successful, but they never quite get caught by thinking that being successful will make them, a, will be, is what it's really about. Yeah. And when do you get there? What, at what, at what following 
is enough, uh, what viewership is enough. And it's right. never enough, and that's the whole point. Well, I think it's Woody Allen that says, it's no doubt that there's a higher reality. The question is, how late is it open, and can you get there by subway? Right, <laughs> right. Um, speaking of, of successful people, um, let's dive into microdosing. Sure. <laughs> what part is most exciting to you right now? Well, let's let's go back a step and take me down from that mountaintop, which um, for for your audience that knows what I'm talking about is like a 400 microgram trip, or if one is doing heavy personal therapeutic work, a 200 microgram trip, and if one is um, enjoying oneself extremely high, that's 100 micrograms, and if you're just going to a a concert and you're not driving 50. So that's all with flashing lights and, and things glow and flowers talk to you and the earth opens up and reveals all its jewels and your hamburger says, why are you eating me? All that. Then a microgram has none of that, absolutely none of that, just erase, erase, erase. Uh, a microgram, 10 micrograms, gives you a little more clarity, a little more energy, a little more compassion. If you're depressed, you probably will feel a lot less depressed. If you're creative, you won't be a higher level of creative, but you'll be creative longer. So it, um, as I said, there's a book out at the moment called A Really Good Day, How Microdosing, and then the title goes on, but that really good day turns out to be remarkably important and valuable for people. And that's the work that I'm now working in. And it's, uh, to me, it's, it's almost um, as if God is having an amusing time with me. He says, you're really interested in the highest forms of mystical experience. And you've spent a lot of your career in that. How about working at the other end? What happens to your physiology um, when you microdose? What seems to happen, and then now people tend to microdose every three or four days. And what they notice over a month is things are starting to shift. They, and this, this is, what's nice is nobody intended this, is I get these reports that say, huh, I'm sleeping better. Um, I'm going back to exercise. I'm doing meditation. I'm eating better. I have a wonderful comment from a guy that said, I looked at the menu, and this was someone who really was into junk food. He looked at the menu, he said, by God, I wanted the salad. And it's as if your body is rebalancing itself. And this is true for some severe problems like chronic pain and depression as well, where there's a somehow a rebalancing of systems. And since psychedelics are still illegal and nobody's really done any lab work with microdosing, we can't say much except that over time that seems to be the effect, which is that people report that their lives are working better in a lot of ways. Um, when I The first time I ever heard about psilocybin mushrooms was that they are a poison for your brain. <laughs> Because the mushroom's poisonous, and it's poison, poison for your brain. Is that true? <laughs> well, um, no. <laughs> it was sixth grade dare class. Yeah, but... well, well there, are, um, there are mushrooms which are, which are bad, 
which have very strong poisons, which keeps insects from eating them. There are insects, there are mushrooms which contain psilocybin, and there are about 100 species, by the way, of psilocybin mushrooms. So whoever designed the universe kind of liked them. And they grow everywhere. In um, two places that come to mind is there's a, a kind called fairy caps, and they grow all over England. And I was once in the Vancouver airport, and, um, you know, there are little observation places where you can look down on the runways, and in between the runways there's usually, you know, like grass and things. And I watched an old VW bus rip on to the airport and a park in the middle of one of these grassy places between runways and three guys got out with little bags and they're running around and they're grabbing stuff off of the ground as fast as possible and then they get back in the bus before any authorities show up and they flee psychedelic mushrooms wow so some of so some psychedelic mushrooms yeah they will grow in forests some will grow on cow poop Right. It just all depends on the climate. And well, one of the things that's funny is the notion is they grow near people. Now, given that they affect people, um, isn't that curious? Now, also, um, there's other mushrooms that have other effects. There's the, the Christmas mushroom. You've seen it on all the little pretty pictures, which is red with white spots. And there's a fascinating bit of footage of reindeer digging through the snow to get at these mushrooms. And it gets them high. In fact, they think they're flying. So where do we get the notion of a guy in a red suit with white trim who's giving people exactly what they want and who has flying reindeer? Do you have any thoughts on the theory of uh, psilocybin mushrooms that grow from cow poop and the influence on uh, Indian culture in believing that cows are holy, the holy animal? Um, doesn't seem they don't, there isn't much interest in India in psilocybin mushrooms that I know of. Um, but they do grow in cow poop and, and we happen to be one of the cultures that has a lot of cows. Um, now, why do they grow in cow poop is because it's probably very nutritious for if you're a mushroom. And um, those are the kind of fun speculations which I'd have to be um, in a different state of consciousness to kind of uh, get off on. Ponder. Um, let's talk about set and setting because that is really important. I do take this, yep. this conversation seriously. I know that there are people out there who have um, taking psychedelics people who haven't and I really enjoyed your book and respect how thorough you are with safety so give me the rundown of yeah. the most important um, aspects of set and setting okay. the thing about psychedelics at any any dose beyond microdosing is it's not a drug experience it's not a mushroom experience it's not a peyote experience it's an experience, and one of the big variables is a psychedelic. But equally important is what we call set and setting, which is what's your mental attitude and what's the setting you're in? What's the situation? What's the, the ambiance? What's the atmosphere? Who's around? And um, I go to kind of over the top being a kind of right-wing psychedelic person saying, if you're going to take an experience which may change your life, it's awfully good to have a guide or ground control, somebody who knows a lot more than you do, 
so that if you get into a space which is beyond your ability to cope, you don't shut down. Um, you get help and you go through. In Burning Man, that's one of their wonderful phrases at the Zendo, at the places which help people who get into trouble, which is we don't bring anyone down, we bring them through, which is we allow them to have the best experience they can and we take them out of their frightening, difficult experience and put them in a safe place and let them know they're being taken care of, that people know what they're doing. So psychedelics with, it's a little bit, again, like sex, which is you really can have sex in the organic food aisle at Whole Foods. But it's not a great set and setting. And to the extent... I tried it once. It was horrible. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you should go buy the oranges. Yeah. <laughs> where the other people are. <laughs> it just started in the orange aisle, and I don't know what came over me. <laughs> so, so set and setting is really actually fundamental and um, at one point I was giving a talk at, at UC Santa Cruz and I had a couple hundred people had showed up and I said, how many of you have had a, a bad or a challenging trip? And almost everybody. And I said, how many of you know why it happened? And almost every hand went up, which is people had a pretty good idea of what went wrong. And it's either things like, well, I realized I didn't trust the people I was with or things happen. My, my favorite on, on the little comment sheet I asked is someone said, you know, what happened in your bad trip? He said, well, everything was going fine till the car caught on fire. And you think, whoa, <laughs> that's a bad situation. So, and people really don't think enough about set and setting for a lot of medical things. I mean, imagine you go to a physician, he says, I'm going to give you an injection that's going to help you. And you you relax your muscle, you either look or you don't look, and it hurts a little bit, and nothing special. Now imagine you're walking down the street and somebody runs up to you with the identical needle and stuff in it and jabs you in the arm. You freak out. That's set and setting. And so, um, again, what I say, if, it, if, if, a, if you want to have something that matters and meaningful, set and setting is important. If you want to simply have a really good time, set and setting is still very important. Right. And uh, who was it? Was it uh, Richard Albert that said, always take psychedelics in nature? No, it was Albert Hoffman. Albert the, Hoffman. The inventor of, or the synthesizer. Right. Albert says, I'm always asked, how should you take psychedelics? And I always say, always take it in nature. Now, he lived to be 102. At age 100, he was giving two-hour lectures. Maybe he knew what he was talking about. Yeah, maybe. Um, man, there's there is so much that I want to ask you. <laughs> well, uh, I will tell you a Santa Cruz story, which is I gave some kind of talk here, and someone afterwards came up and said, I want to give you a new word. And I said, what's that? And she said, it's a, it's a hikadelic. And I said, what's a hikadelic? She said, well, about four times a year, a group of us get together, and we take about 100 micrograms, and we go on a hike. That's a hikeadelic. And I thought, oh, Santa Cruz. <laughs> oh, good old SC. <laughs> Never have so many people done so little for so long. Um in 1965, 66, mm -hmm. 66, that's 66, psychedelics were made illegal. Right. Was that a sweeping decision that the government just 
one year, it's all happening. Take me back into that moment of, of how they became illegal. Well, they became illegal. Nobody quite knows why the government suddenly decided to make them illegal. But we know it had nothing to do with science. And it had a lot to do with that there were a lot of people who actually said the Vietnam War really is a bad idea. In fact, war is a bad idea. And there are a lot of other people in the country that said, war is a terrific idea, as long as me and my children are not in it. So there was a lot of political upheaval, and psychedelics were among the factors that were disturbing the culture. Remember, psychedelics are behind political unrest. They were behind the ecology movement, the women's movement, social justice movement, uh, the whole notion that people should not harm and torture or imprison, even mentally, other people, that was very psychedelic. And the government had the faintest idea what to do. So my, my imagination is there's some meeting, and they're saying, we've got to stop psychedelics. At this point, there's millions of doses out there. And someone says, but it's illegal, and we can't get hold of that. And someone said, well, can't we stop someone? And then someone, in my fantasy, says, why don't we stop legal research? And someone else said, oh, that, we could stop that. So they wrote a letter to about 60 different projects. And Your, yours being one of them? Mine being one of them. And said, as of the receipt of this letter, your investigational drug exemption is canceled. Now, understand, I'm in this little group in Menlo Park, and we're doing not a clinical study. We're doing our, a very different study. We have four senior scientists in our treatment room, and they have spent the morning relaxing, listening to music, and they're about to work on the most pressing scientific problem they have had in their career. And we get this letter. And I looked at our little group, and I'm the youngest member, and I say, I think we got this letter tomorrow. <laughs> and so that ended our research on scientific problem-solving and creativity. So th these were researchers who would take psychedelics and then try and work on a pressing these problem. Were, these were scientists. They, okay. weren't, they, were, they were people working for the high-tech industries of the day. They were Stanford professors. They were architects. They were designers. Um, to get into our creativity study, the rule was you had to have a problem you'd been working on for about three months that you had failed on. Now, these were very smart people, and they didn't like to fail. So what we wanted them to care, to be emotionally involved, intellectually involved, and also that they had the necessary, probably the necessary smarts and background to solve these problems, because these are all people being paid to do that. And so we said to them, we're going to help you. And out of that study, as much as we were allowed to do before we were shut down, there were like 48 problems and 44 solutions. So it was very exciting, and we were having this really totally different use of psychedelics than anything we've talked about so far. And the letter came through. Now, they were also stopping people who were giving LSD to bacteria so or to mice. Um, so it stopped legal research, and what did it do for psychedelics in the country? Just probably picked up the pace of people manufacturing it and using it. And one of the, one of the scientists, the uh, illegal drug chemists, 
figured out he'd made approximately 250 million doses. So the government really was stopping us, um, had nothing to do with anything, except that it did prevent the therapeutic and other uses um, were stalled for decades. Right. And then what did you do after that? Well, being being really not criminal, um, I mean, I might run a stoplight at two in the morning, but that was like a big deal. Um, I looked around for something else to do. And what I realized is that psychedelics had opened up a world of spirituality and mythology and creativity. And so I also had to earn a living. And so I ended up joining a small consulting firm, which meant I helped people solve problems that they didn't know how to solve. And ended up, uh, I taught at a couple of universities. Um, I made, actually made a bunch of films. One is, one series was called Drugs, colon, the children are choosing. And what was that about? It, oh, that was wonderful fun. I had uh, been teaching on the East Coast at Brandeis, didn't like living on the East Coast, and was back here with no job. And across, as I was crossing the country, I learned that there was this um, KQED in San Francisco was auditioning for someone to help put together a program on drugs for children, mainly psychedelics, because parents and legislators and everybody was freaking out. And young people, again, Vietnam, didn't trust old generation, et cetera, et cetera. And the KQD had done a series about sex. And the legislature had gone insane because it was basically teaching children how to do sex correctly. And they said, why don't we do one on drugs? And I said, that will really just destroy you. How about we do one on telling parents what their children are doing. And they said, well, okay. So I tried out, and how did I, tr- what did I do my tryout in? I went to a, a shop, psychedelic shop in the Haight-Ashbury, and had them shoot a little, you know, two-minute clip there and made it clear that I was on the side of the children and that I understood that if you had a white coat and said you were a doctor, everybody stopped listening. So we had this great, wonderful, fun series. And that was among the things I did to, to earn a living. Wow. Uh, I'm going to shift a little bit because this is one thing that I, I want to cover because it's, it's close to my heart. Um, I've had three friends now growing up um, who started doing Oxycontin and then got addicted to heroin. Um, happy to say that, that two of them have been able to recover, but I want to talk about psychedelics, um, in use for getting people off of, um, heroin, which is now the largest, we now have the largest heroin epidemic in our country. Well, we have the largest opioid epidemic of which heroin is one. Yes. Most of the epidemic is prescription. Yeah. But that doesn't make it any better. Yeah. It just means that your doctor starts you off, not some street person. <laughs> and the reason that many people turn to heroin is because it's cheaper. Yeah. So psychedelics n- can help a lot. Now, not the ones we've talked about, which have been LSD and psilocybin, but Ibogaine, 
which is a, a African derived from a, the iboga plant in Africa, seems to give people an incredibly uncomfortable, tough experience. Imagine if you were reviewing your whole life, but only every bad thing you'd ever done. And it took 36 hours. At the end of that, you are sobered, and you don't want to do more bad things. And you've been a heroin addict. So you've done a number of things that you're not, you don't want nobody to know. As you come out from that, what you have is no withdrawal symptoms. You're actually feeling totally clean. And that lasts for about six weeks. So you have had this incredibly um, kind of pushing your nose through your own stuff, like we train little dogs not to do it in the house. And you don't have withdrawal symptoms. So you're not immediately drawn back to taking drugs just for the pain. So you have six weeks in which you can develop new habits. And there are clinics, not in the U.S. Down in Mexico, though. Mexico, Costa Rica, Europe, Africa, um, what we might call the civilized world, that are are set up to help you get through that. And and these clinics have uh, medical backup and support because a lot of heroin addicts um, are in lousy, 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 lousy physical shape. And some people have died during this treatment, mainly from having a heart attack. So it's not a nothing event. But if you're in reasonable health and you have a good clinic, um, the chances are it will help you. And some people need to do this more than once. Yes. So it is a different kind of breakthrough, and it's a totally different way of working. And it has, as I say, these two sides. One is the psychological kind of review, and the other is this the no withdrawal symptoms is really quite extraordinary in itself. No one has any idea why it happens. Well, there are, well, why it happens is because this plant somehow protects you in some way. And if I knew enough neurochemistry to tell you, I would, but then neither you nor any of your listening audience, except for about 1%, would have any idea what I said. So fortunately, I don't know enough to do that, so we're all safe. Thank God. <laughs> and... Um, What's been your experience with ayahuasca? Well, I have more and more friends who have lots of experiences with ayahuasca. And ayahuasca is very puzzling because ayahuasca has an agenda. It's a, it, the plant has a spirit. And everybody, no one ever says mama LSD. But lots of people say mama or grandma ayahuasca because they feel they're in the presence of a being. And some people have these wonderful kind of just dialogues, you know, as if you have a therapist. And you say something, and ayahuasca says something, and you say something, and ayahuasca says something. And you, then, you know, when you read it over, it's a dialogue. Um, other people, they're consumed by snakes. Other people, little beings enter their body, like little repair, uh, like doing maintenance on a septic system. And they're just every place repairing. People have gotten over massive physical and mental issues overnight, and other people have taken ayahuasca a hundred times and say it's really good. Um, it's very physical. LSD has almost no physical effects. You have a little, your eyeballs, your irises expand a little, your blood pressure goes up a few points, 
your temperature goes up a couple of tenths of a percent. It's almost nothing. Ayahuasca is a massive physical effect. Um, one of the central effects is a wonderful term called purging, which is kind of vomiting with meaning. Yeah, purging your GI tract. Yeah, right? and and while we Westerners all make a whole lot of psychological stuff out of how valuable purging is, um, if you go back to the Shibibo in the Amazon and you say, well, why is the purging? And, and then you, you realize that this is a culture where the chances of getting intestinal parasites are extremely good. So something which purges you is a totally physical healing system. And so that's probably part of why ayahuasca is so valued because it both clears you up internally and, again, gets you in touch with that there's a larger world of usually spirit beings. So it's, it's a, what, what is different, I think, for me is when I said integration takes a year about LSD and then you have people that are taking ayahuasca six times in 12 days because they've got this ticket to Peru or they're taking it once a month at a one of the, say, the 100 circles uh, in Los Angeles. And the answer is we don't know much. There's a wonderful book coming out which looks only at the results of ayahuasca, not the event. So there's almost no snakes and uh, river dolphins and and demons in it, but there's a lot about has it helped you with your life? And the answer is, for most people, it seems to be helpful. And it seems to be, from my point of view, less mystical. That one doesn't come up with the, the, the kind of quiet awareness of the interconnection of all things. Now, a lot of ayahuasca people will say, no, no, I feel exactly that. And they may, but it isn't central. So, God, man, this this idea of, of interconnectedness. So, I, so I had a um, a mushroom forager on last night, mm -hmm. and he was blowing my mind about the wood wide web. Blowing my mind about <laughs> of about this connected web right. um, of of microbes that are micro microbes. What what am I? Mycelium. Mycelium. Sorry, mycelium connected web of mycelium that will allow one tree that is getting a disease to communicate with another tree across the forest, right. which is a completely different species, to put up a defense system. Right. Or a tree that is um, you know, dying can get glucose through the mycelium from another tree yep. to help pump up its immune system. Yep. And psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms t tend to have this consciousness expanding and kind of interconnected web mm -hmm. within our consciousness. Speak to that a little bit. <laughs> well, the, the book that is blowing a lot of our minds who love trees anyway is The Secret Life of Trees. And it's by this wonderful forester, German forester, who was originally hired to be a forester and cut down trees, and he began to get that trees didn't like that. And some trees, and, and then he has all these wonderful discoveries of not only, as you pointed out, not only do trees communicate, but they help each other. They Now, often they have interconnected root systems, 
the mycelium allow the roots to take in nourishment. So without the mushrooms and the mycelium, the whole forest falls apart. But the forest itself then has a lot of communication systems of its own. Um, and there's one wonderful item about warning, which is uh, giraffes eat leaves. Trees don't like that. Now, when a giraffe is eating the leaves of a tree, the tree sends out a warning, you know, giraffe, hide your leaves. Just like that, I can imagine. <laughs> and, and what the trees nearby the giraffe do is they put out something that tastes yucky. So the giraffe, if it goes to the next tree, will go, Bleh. What giraffes do is they eat a tree, and then they go about 100 yards because that's about the range of communication of the tree they just bitten off of. So it's like everybody knows, you know, everyone in the forest knows. The giraffe knows that the trees communicate. The trees know they can't communicate to everybody. Um, and the system, therefore, if you think about it, um, the giraffe has enough trees to eat and the forest is not harmed. So that's now, just now, one, one hit. And that's one hit. Now take me inside my mind with that with that expansive expanded well the opportunity the notion that we're separate from anything makes no sense and once you begin to get that the world shifts because uh, we've been brought up to be proud independent beings i don't need your help thank you or i don't need your help and get the mm, away from me now Breath, for example, suggests that you're taking in air and I'm taking in air and everybody's taking in the same air. And we're all connected through air. It's one of the things I kind of like about air pollution is it even goes inside gated communities. So there's no safe place for air. And obviously water, but less obviously uh, the biology of the universe, which is filled, of course, with microbes and viruses, all of which are busy as all get out not harming each other, but working out a balance. And so if you just think of yourself, let's not think of the forest with its complications. Let's just think of your gut. And what we now know is you have between one and 10,000 species of bacteria and viruses in your gut. And they're all living in a very complicated harmony. And if you want to make it hard for them or you favor one group, say you pour sugar down your gut, um, that's going to disturb the harmony and you might get sick. Not You're not getting sick. It's that you've, the viral, bacterial, complicated, interdependent world that you are um, has to be in balance. Similarly with the forest, which is the forest is made not up of trees separate, but of treeness and bushness and grassness and virusness and fungusness. <laughs> And they're all working it out. Um, now, we don't see it much in a northern forest because everybody's kind of quiet. But if you go to the rainforest, it's incredibly noisy and busy. And at first, the first level is it looks like everything is trying to kill everything else. Because as soon as there's a weakness, there's 10 species on it. And only when you step back a little bit do you get that everybody is feeding everyone else and that one of the ways you feed other beings is to die but a tree doesn't die it puts out a thousand seeds or a hundred thousand seeds and a bird eats a seed and then drops it 20 yards away and so forth so that 
all these species are actually working to support each other as best they can. And that then you go back to a northern forest and you can see the same thing, but kind of quiet. Where did you learn your storytelling skills? <laughs> You're very good at, at speaking to all of this and, and threading a needle in a, um, a politicized and stigmatized <laughs> uh, subject. And I'm, I'm guessing that that was a learned skill for you to, to be able to do the dance that you do. Well, two things. One is um, I've always been pretty good with my mouth, even before psychedelics. I didn't have much to talk about before psychedelics, but I was kind of glib. And um, I came from a very uh, kind of smart-ass family, which is used a lot of big words. My, my father played Scrabble without a dictionary, that kind of thing. And, and most of my family has written books. But what I've found is that I don't um, plan my talking very much. I do watch what comes next. And I have a certain faith that very often the right thing will happen. And because I do come from this interconnected place, um, the universe is perfectly happy to work through me, and I'm perfectly happy to be worked through. And there have been times when I've given speeches, and then later on I will listen to a recording and I'll make notes, and I'll think, oh, I could use that. That's really good. That's very interesting. So that I have access um, to a lot of different parts of my mind. And the other thing that happened with psychedelics is I wasn't really very visual. I was very verbal. And if you said, um, what, what, what happens when I say, say the word march? Um, I would see letters, maybe with a capital, maybe not. Now if you say march, I see people marching, I see a season, I see calendar leaves like at the beginning of a Disney film. Um, I see the March Hare. I have lots of visual associations, and often when I'm talking, I will be more describing. You know, if I were asked to describe this room with a bed and lighting and posters and books, um, I could spend, you know, 30 minutes describing it because it's really easy because I'm just looking at something and saying what it is. Well, in a sense, inside the mind, there's all that too. So that speaking is a little bit of a genetic predisposition and talking about tricky subjects maybe i've probably had some practice yeah you it seems that you have um do you ever get anxious before talks i have once or twice in my life and i've been amazed and i thought wow there are people who get upset before they give a talk and some you know professional actors professional comics talk about you know stage fright and people throwing up before a curtain and the answer is I don't know what they're really talking about except once or twice I've had that feeling and I thought boy if I felt like this before talks I wouldn't do them but what I know is that I see the world a little bit slant which means I can see the humor in a situation and when you see the humor in a situation that relaxes everyone and when everyone is relaxed, you have their energy. And once you have the energy of a group, it flows very well. Right. It doesn't matter if you miss just one word. Right. So in a sense, as I'm thinking about it, I used to avoid radio or a podcast. 
And the reason is there's no, um, there's not enough energy audience. Now you happen to be putting out enough energy that I can just float with it, um, but that's relatively rare. Right. Um, and how about for writing? I really enjoyed your book. What was your process to write it? Rewriting. Rewriting. <laughs> I'm yeah. re- I'm reading one uh, right now called On Writing Well. Have you read that one? I I read a, a a book on you know good writing every couple of years, usually before I start a new book. And what I'm aware of is I'm a fair writer, not terribly good, but I'm comfortable rewriting a lot. Yeah. And actually, I love rewriting because rewriting it's little bits like there is a sentence, there is a crappy word in the sentence. Oh, if I put in a nice word, I've got a sentence. That's the main thing I'm learning with this book is that it's all about revision and it's all about taking out those unnecessary words. Well, writers all have little stories, usually about how many times your book got rejected, someone famous's book got rejected. But the one I like is the story that James Thurber tells about himself. James Thurber was a brilliant, sweet, funny um, writer about himself and, and kind of American stuff. And... He's writing a story, and it's in the typewriter, and his wife looks at it, and she says, Thurber, this is high school-level stuff. And he looks at her and says, wait till the seventh draft. And so writing is this wonderful thing where you can get, you know, you get it to do it over again. Life isn't like that. Yeah. You screw up in, say, you know, a relationship and the next day you can't say well let's go back and let's do the date again <laughs> yeah it's know, comforting in that way yeah groundhog day doesn't happen right but in writing it always happens if you're coming up with a new idea or new you need to figure out how to articulate um, you know, a complex new idea are you better at talking it out or writing it out first what I've been learning is I I'm better at talking it out and I now will use my my little Mac dictation and often I will, particularly if the idea is moving fast, is I'll try and get some of it down. So I was looking today at how to explain the difference between high dose and low dose, between um, people using it for who are healthy, people using it are ill. And I had one other set of variables. And I thought, I need a three-dimensional matrix that I don't know how to even describe. So I just made some notes in little boxes. And I'll get back to that. Uh, because I, I have the basic notion that I need to deal with that. And my first try, which was a kind of three-dimensional matrix, that isn't going to work. <laughs> I don't know what will work, um, but I've got the basics. And catching ideas on the fly, um, when I'm seriously writing, I'll always have a pad by the bed. So Because in the morning, there's that moment before the day closes in on you where your unconscious, which has been up all night, um, is talking to you and says, <clears throat> by the way, you really need to write a note to Cherry Vanilla. This is a real person. <laughs> That's her stage name. And thank her for the letter she wrote you about how microdosing has um, basically helped her get rid of a condition she's had for 50 years. So I owe her a note. Okay. Now, if you look in my um, in my phone, there's a little note from me to me at about 6.30 this morning. It says Europa. So that's enough for me to know what I just told you. And then you'll expand on that. Yeah. And then the other thing is, and there's a, a wonderful book called Bird by Bird 
by Annie Lamont. It's her first book, and it's about writing. And there's a chapter, and the chapter heading is, it's about first drafts. It says, if you can't write shit, you can't write. Which means if you can't write a first draft that's really bad, you're not letting yourself work clearly enough to get something started. Yeah, yeah. And was it a painful process for you writing the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide? Or did that feel like it flowed easily? Or that was one was easier than most of my books because I was fairly sure that it would never get published or I'd have to publish it myself. So I could write anything I wanted. Because um, I had I had planned to write, um, someone had said to me, you really should, I wrote a little personal story about one of the stories that we're talking about. And there's a very famous writer in my family, Anne Fadiman, and she said, you know, you really ought to think about a memoir. And I thought, me, memoir, big me. So I spent a whole summer down here in Santa Cruz um, working on my past because it was this era that looked interesting. So I was reading the books I should have read then and I read my found journals and notes and I had these elaborate schedules of when I did such and such. And then I had this wonderful breakthrough, which in the writing world is called an epiphany. And I thought- I've heard of those. I've never <laughs> experienced it before, right. but I know it's there and on top I, of the mountain. Exactly. And I thought, who cares about who Jim Fadiman knew or who he slept with or who he didn't sleep with? And I thought it's going to Unless be... it was in the middle of a Whole Foods island that you, uh, aisle that you slept with, and don't put it in the book, well, right? The 60s were more fun than, than it's been since. <laughs> but, but what I realized is nobody cared. It was a smaller list than my Christmas card list. And then I thought, well, is there anything I know that other people either don't know or have forgotten? And the answer was there were things. And so I started to write those up. And that became... A Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And it was a pleasure to write. Um, and I had some wonderful help editing and rewriting and revising so that um, parts of it which were totally clear to me um, became clear enough for other people. Oh, it was a pleasure to, to read. And I'll let you go. Um, but parting words in speaking about psychedelics in public. I think that there are a lot of people out there um, who are afraid to talk about it around the dinner table. They're afraid to talk about it publicly. What are some tools um, for them to be able to open these conversations? Well, one thing to keep in mind is since psychedelics became illegal, 26 million Americans, just U.S., have had psychedelics. That's and most of those people were more literate, say, than the, they were in the top half and just in terms of literacy and education and so forth. So there's a lot of people around here who have not spoken about their psychedelic experience. And when you write a book, you become, um, let us say, a you, bit, you're, a, you're... A bit of a radio tower. <laughs> that's right, beep, right, beep, right. Beep. You're, you're willing to talk to anybody and say, I have this book, and... I had this uh, just one moment, and there were many, but one that I particularly was pleased that I was on a plane, and I was next to the kind of to someone who looked like they were an investment banker, and it turned out they were, and I said, "Hello, I have a book on psychedelics," and there was this look, initial look, like if I had a large enough shoe, I could squash you like a bug, and then there was this moment, and the eyes went glassy, 
And this voice came out and he said, you know, once in college, I remember it was about two in the morning and I was naked and I was running down the street and I was yelling, what are you all doing hiding in your clothes? And then the glassiness went away and this person who I would not get along with reappeared. But there was that moment, <laughs> right, where he'd reconnected with the part of himself that he'd put away. And I find if I'm particularly with professionals, with doctors or lawyers or, or business types, um, Tim Ferriss has a wonderful comment that all the billionaires he knows in Silicon Valley have all had lights of psychedelic experience. So the chances are if you said, gee, I'm interested in psychedelics, and you just wait for a moment. In many situations, somebody will say something that will give you permission. So we have taboos. We don't talk um, a lot about, say, um, sexual interests that are unusual. But we're not surprised if other people have them. We don't talk about very often spiritual things, except if we find there's a little bit of space. And what I found with psychedelics, um, particularly with microdosing where there's no fuss, is if you mention it, you'll find that the world may be much more open than you think. And if they're not open, then um, they will also not um, be upset at you. Um, because you've done this, because the culture now is so much more accepting than it's ever been. And remember, those 26 million people go up every year by about 400 to 600,000. Whether it's a time of repression, whether it's a time of acceptance, and um, it's hard to find negative articles anymore about psychedelics. And I assure you, um, I look for them. <laughs> Well, thanks for stopping by, and I really appreciate it. Well, I must say it's a pleasure to be with you and to be part of this uh, group. I don't often um, get into the same world that you are physically in, uh, even though I also am near the beach. <laughs> and so this was great fun for me, and I really appreciate it. Well, let's go body surf soon. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, my friends. If you want to learn more, head over to my website, kyle.surf slash podcast, where I have included more resources. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Give it a rating on iTunes. It takes about two minutes and it really helps me out. Until next time, get outside, go body surfing, and have a fantastic day.